Thank you, ladies, for coming this morning. It's a smaller group, but I'm okay with that because that means it's more intimate and we get to have more fun. Um, Okay, so my husband thinks that inanimate objects are out to get him. So whether it's like the rock that just happens to crop up and he stubs his toe on it, or the bag of dog food that like stubbornly won't open and then all of a sudden it splits wide open, or the tool bag that falls over the floor, uh, falls over and dumps all of his tools on the floor for no reason. It never fails that every couple of months, Christian will mutter, mostly under his breath these days, uh, something about how inanimate objects are making his day so much harder. And uh, one time when the boys were little, I remember waking up and opening our pantry door, and there in the middle of the pantry was a cereal box that had been like crammed into a shelf that was like too small for it. And I could just, in my head, I was like, he's, he's muttering about inanimate objects and not fitting in where they're supposed to go. So <laughs> it's just something that, I don't, anyways, we, uh, Christian and I really kind of have fun, um, like theorizing what, what that means. Like, what does that say about God and his goodness? Like, does that mean that deep down in Christian's mind, he actually believes that God is out to get him? Um, <laughs> And while it's funny and humorous to theorize why God would providentially ordain the open bottle of barbecue sauce to fall all over his trousers, um, there are actual spiritual implications to the fact that the best weed killer on the market won't kill all the weeds, the car will break down while driving on the interstate, Um, the avocado avocado you've been waiting to ripen will jump straight to rotten. Uh, And so what do those things say about the world that we live in? Well, they all speak to a fallen world, a world full of sin, but what is sin? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Wayne Grudem says that sin is failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and in attitude, but also in our moral nature. So we don't then have to look far to find sin. If it's a part of our nature, a part of our actions, a part of our attitude, then it's a part of our everyday lives. It's a part of our thoughts when we wake up and a part of our world when we open the door. So why do we need to learn about the doctrine of sin? Why should we peer more deeply into the wickedness and ungodliness that we see in the world? I remember the first time I stepped foot in a healthy church for the first time. I was in my early 20s and had been a Christian for about 10 years. But I'd spent most of that time in some form of like non-denominational church or uh, charismatic churches. So after the first few weeks in that church of like pure shock that I'm not kidding, that someone was preaching expositionally through the Bible and that they held the word of God out as the ultimate truth in our world, one of the next things that shook me was how they talked a lot about our sin and how I felt about it. It was a relief. Hearing that I was a sinner and still a sinner even after receiving Christ as my Savior and that I needed his grace and forgiveness in my life every day was soothing to my soul, and it brought me comfort. And I, when I was starting to work on this, I thought back to that time, like, why did that bring me relief, and why did that bring me comfort? It was a, a comfort because I had succumbed to the subtle temptation that after accepting Christ, I needed to earn my own righteousness. And it's a subtle but terrible theology that we sometimes think without understanding the consequences, that instead of doing good works and obeying God out of gratitude for his redemption of our souls, we do it to earn God's favor and to prove ourselves worthy. So the relief that I felt came from hearing good theology 
that was faithful to the word and brought life to my soul. And that's why we should study the doctrine of sin and all sound doctrine. Sound doctrine protects us from the empty philosophies of the world and from incorrect applications. So at the same time, I know that hearing about our own sin and brokenness might not give everyone a feeling of relief. Um, Some of us might have a tendency to overemphasize sin and allow it to become bigger in our minds than Christ's ability to forgive it, leaving us full of despair. That's certainly a temptation for me. The doctrine of sin cannot be the starting point for any of our study of systematic theology. Doing so would leave us without hope. So when we started our Women's Institute series on systematic theology, we started with God, right? We started with the Trinity, and we started with his attributes, and then we went on to his providence and creation. And only after studying God did we move on to man and study the doctrine of humanity so that we would know who we are, who God created us to be, our value and worth as image bearers of God. So we need to know who God is and who we are before God lest we are tempted to overemphasize sin and depravity in ourselves and in others. So in my own life, I have a temptation to always go back to feelings of rejection by others and despair over my own sin. So I understand that the feelings of condemnation that we can bring on ourselves, and my goal today is to bring us relief from good theology and not feelings of condemnation, okay? So let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump straight in. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for um, who you are, your abounding love, your um, goodness, your justice, your wrath, all of those things that I only understand partially, Um, but I just praise you that you have allowed me to know you at all, and um, in your name I pray, amen. So today we're going to think about sin within the major epochs of salvation history and the storyline of scripture. So there's creation and then there's the fall and then there's um, redemption and consummation. Okay, that should be in your handouts. You should be able to see that. Uh, That's going to be our four points today. So we're going to start at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. So if you could open your Bibles and we're going to examine um, what the creation story tells us about God and the world he created. So... Um, to remind us of who he is. We have to start, before we can talk about sin, we have to start and remind ourselves of who God is in the world that he created. So um, this is where I'm going to use my little T-chart. And I just want us to go through and talk about what the world looked like when he started, when he created it. So God and creation. So I'm going to get us started, and I'm going to remind you what we learned from Jennifer back in February about the doctrine of creation, okay? So when the world, what did the world look like when he created it? The first thing that I want to remind us of is his aseity, right? That was the fancy word we've been using. Jennifer said, he alone is self-sufficient, uncreated, and he gave existence to everything outside of himself, So God is uncreated and self-sufficient, truly self-sufficient. And then the next one is God's transcendence. And this means that he is infinitely above and beyond all that he created. He is distinct from all that he has made. 
So um, if you haven't listened to Jennifer's talk on creation, it, um, she knocked it out of the park. I would for sure recommend listening to it. But because of these two things, because we know these two things are true, we can say that God is sovereign, right? He is over all things. And God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is in charge of the entire world. All right, so um, we don't have time to read through all of Genesis 1 and 2, okay? Uh, We will read through Genesis 1 pretty soon here. Genesis 3 pretty soon here. But let's just like think through what does the created world before the fall, what does it say about, uh, what does it say about the world? How does, what did the world look like? It was good. good. Okay. The world was good. And what did it say about um, man? When God created man, he was very good. Okay. Um, what about anything else in there in Genesis 1 and 2 that you can see that specifically talks about, like, his creation? What did it look like? What did, yeah. What about man and God? What was that relationship like? Hmm? You, okay, we are image bearers of God, Right? And then, yeah? Okay. There was communion. So he dwelled with God. And he knew God. Okay, so we can also talk about, so if sin is not there, then what does that say about, um, if, if there is no sin, what's that called? Like, without sin. What's that word that we use? Holy, right? Without sin. Like, it's pure and holy. So that creation was holy. Okay, so those are a few things that we learn about God and creation right here. So Morgan sums it up like this. The good God created a good world for the good of his creatures. So the good God created a good world for the good of his creatures. Humans were created good and blessed beyond measure, being made in God's image with an unhindered relationship with God and with freedom. Okay, what do we not see in the creation story? Sin, right? So if it's not there, God cannot be the author of sin. It's against his nature. So Deuteronomy 32, 4 says that he is a God without iniquity, who is just and upright. James 1, 13 says that he cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. In fact, God utterly hates sin. Psalm 5, 4 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So the idea here is that sin is an intruder. It is not the product of God's creativity. It does not belong. It is not original. And it has not always existed. So these are a few things that we learn about who God is through the created world and what he created and didn't create reflects his character and is going to help us understand ourselves better and the nature of sin better. 
So if you want to learn more about God's character, Catherine Brill spoke on his attributes last November. Um, and so you can, uh, all of these, you can hear more about his attributes in that podcast. So um, this is what we learn from cre- the creation that God, the world that God created. It was good, and it was without sin. So the next point that we're going to move on to is the fall. So this is where we will obviously be spending the majority of our time. Um, I'm going to repeat what every speaker has said in this series so far. There is no way that I can cover this topic in detail. Um, I'm not going to answer every question that you have about sin, unfortunately. Um, There are definitely some thorny questions out there and questions that are hard to answer, even for the well-studied theologian. But we are going to dig deep, and we are going to answer a lot of our questions and cover a lot of ground. Uh, But if you still have questions after my teaching, just reach out to me. I can point you in the right direction. So how do you define sin? When you walked in this morning, how would you have defined it yourself? It's kind of a broad topic. And so I'm going to give you a working definition for us. And hopefully, once you have that definition, we can walk through it. You'll see that we're walking through it. So sin is falling short of God's glory not only in action and in attitude, but also in our nature. So sin is falling short of God's glory, not only in action and in attitude, but also in our nature. This defines sin in relation to God and his glory. The Bible uses several different words for sin. So you can take the Romans passage that was read for us earlier. Paul uses three different Greek words in that passage alone. The most common Greek word used means simply to miss the mark. It's the idea of an archer taking aim at a target, and instead of hitting the bullseye, he hits just off the center. So another word used means a lapse or deviation, specifically when it comes to the truth. And it's most commonly translated as trespass. So it's the idea of crossing a boundary that the Lord has put in place. Uh, Then there are a couple of different words that imply just straight-up evil, like godlessness and disobedience, where the disobedience has evil intent and willful, defiant rebellion against God. Scripture often describes sin as exchanging the glory of God for something else. Romans 1.23, Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Or Psalm 106.20, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Jeremiah 2.11, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then the more familiar passage, Romans 3.23, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. So sin is exchanging the glory of the incorruptible holy God for something that is less than. So it can also be defined as a privation, meaning like depriving something of its inherent goodness. And this frames sin within the context of its creation. So was this thing or being a person, or was this thing or being or a person created good and perfect? Is it no longer perfectly good? What deprived it of its goodness? Sin. Uh, Sin has deprived us of the good world that God created. So to sum up, Paul Plantinga says, above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. Our relationship with God is disrupted because we have failed to reach God's standard of righteousness and godliness. Even in defining sin, we have to define it over and against the polar opposite of good. Sin is the negation of good. 
Sproul says, we can't understand what unrighteousness is unless we understand righteousness. We can't understand ungodliness unless we understand godliness. And even the term antichrist is meaningless without an understanding of the term Christ. So Adam and Eve's choice irrevocably changed the world that we all live in. So turn to Genesis 3, and I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going to think about some of the implications. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was, he was taken. He drove out the man, and to the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to the tree of life. So this was a cosmic upheaval. The whole entire world, not just Adam and Eve, and not just the Garden of Eden, but the whole entire world was irrevocably changed that day. The world could not go back to the way it was without some form of intervention. When Adam and Eve sinned, it created alienation and estrangement between mankind and many things. What and who were alienated from each other in this act? 
So first, it alienated man and nature. The whole created order was affected by sin. The work that God provided them with before the fall was now going to be hard. They would have to toil. Emily Cockrell taught on the theology of work in June of 2021, and if you're interested in hearing more about that, that's on our website. God created work for Adam and Eve, but after the fall, that work would be laborious. It would be hard and unpleasant and often feel purposeless. And that's something we still feel today, right? <laughs> Second, it created alienation between nature itself. So Romans 8, 20 to 22 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation was corrupted due to the fall. We see this natural evil in the world, whether, whether it's weather events like hurricanes, um, ticks and chiggers and thorns and thistles, venomous spiders, diseases, cancer. These are in the world because the world was corrupted by the fall. Uh, next, it created alienation of man from man. And we see this in our day-to-day -day lives and perhaps is the biggest evidence that there is such a thing as sin in this world. We see the wickedness of ungodliness when we read about the latest mass shooting, when we hear about the abuse of a child or the war in Ukraine. We see the evidence of the alienation of man from man on a personal level, but also on a nation-to-nation -nation level. And maybe it's as simple as the hard-hearted attitudes we have towards others and how quick we are to judge them for not living the way we do. Or maybe it's when we sit with a sister and hear their story of the harm and evil committed against them. We can't deny the sin among mankind. Um, sometimes the grief from the sin overwhelms me. Um, just last weekend, I was like mowing the lawn, which of course is the best time that, the, that I have with the Lord because my mind can't, literally I can't hear anything else, I can't do anything else but just sit there and mow. But it just hit me, the despair of like the brokenness in the relationships in my own family and just crying out to the Lord, asking how we got to this place and mourning the loss of what it should be. It's not as it should be, is it? Uh, we see that the fall created alienation of man from himself. So with sin, we, we become alienated from ourselves. Our view of ourselves is distorted. If we're not puffing ourselves up, then we're pulling ourselves down. And I don't know about you, but I have to constantly remind myself that what, it, what I look like does not matter to God. My responsibility to the person he created me to be is to be a good steward of his body and to glorify him in what I do. So how do you speak about yourself? And what are the adjectives that you use about yourself? Learning about the doctrine of humanity last month really helped me see myself from a better perspective, God's perspective. So Plantinga says, sin hurts other people and grieves God, but it also corrodes us. Sin is a form of self-abuse. Part of our imperfection is an imperfect sensitivity to our own sin. Because this is true, we need God's spirit, God's word, and God's people in our lives to help us live wisely and live well. And the last thing we see is that this one act in Genesis 3 also created alienation between man and God. And you see, for reconciliation to occur, there first had to be alienation. There had to be an estrangement. What are we being saved from? We're being saved from the wrath of God. Adam and Eve's sin severed the relationship between man and God, 
And R.C. Sproul says this about man's alienation. What we are saved from is God. The immediate problem that salvation addresses is our estrangement and alienation from God, who is righteous and holy and who has decreed that he will judge the world. Adam and Eve's sin created alienation between man and God. So if the fall had catastrophic consequences for the world, they weren't just limited to those two people, right? Adam and Eve. This is true for all of our sin. It isn't just limited to our own selves and our own lives. Our sin doesn't stop with us. So when my father chose not to father me as he should, it affected me. And it affects my children because it informs the way that I parent them. Our sin is not isolated to our own lives, just as Adam and Eve's one choice was not isolated to them. So let's look at that train of thought for a few minutes now. When Adam and Eve sinned, how did that affect their children and every single descendant that would come after them? So I want us to go back to the verses that Haley read for us earlier in Romans 5, 12 to 21. So go ahead and flip over there, and we're going to walk through this passage and see what it tells us about the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. The context of this passage is focused on Christ and what his work on the cross did, but I want to take a minute and dig for the implications that Paul makes in these verses about sin. So I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to we're going to talk about each verse and what it means, okay? Because Paul, you know, he can make things sound more complicated than they really are, and we just have to do a little bit of work to see what he's saying. So therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to, came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so let's look at verse 12, okay? How did sin come into the world? What does it say? Through one man, right? So, um... Okay, and let's see, how did death come into the world? Verse 12, through sin, yep. And then death spread to all because all have sinned, right? That's what verse 12 says. 
Was sin in the world before the law? What does verse 13 say? Yes. So that as the example of death shows, sin was present in the world before the law was given. The law did not create sin, it defined sin. It gave it parameters. Is it a sin to drive dangerously down a road where children are present? Yes. What if you were in a country where that is not illegal? Is it still a sin? Yes. All right, verse 14, what does it say about Adam's trespass and who dies? Is it just Adam and Eve who died in verse 14? No, all die. Many have died through one man's trespass, right? Um, and verse 16, God's judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, right? Adam's sin brought condemnation to all. Verse 17, because of Adam's trespass, death reigned. In verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, meaning it defined sin better than before, and so more realized the sin that they had committed. But verse 21, praise God, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what, does this, what do these things right here, what does all this mean for mankind and us? Well, it means that we have inherited Adam's guilt. His guilt wasn't ascribed to just him, but to all of us. Before God, we are all guilty because of Adam's sin, because we are descendants of Adam. Burkhoff says that sin carried permanent pollution. The solidarity of the human race would affect not only Adam, but all his descendants as well. Um, the evidence of this is that we all die. So we all are condemned because we all die. If you die, then you have inherited Adam's guilt. The book Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe, says Adam's sin is attributed to us and our legal standing before and a relationship with God is negated. Our relationship with God is severed, and because of their sin, all mankind, including us, has no access to God. Adam and Eve might have been the ones that ate the forbidden fruit, but all of us are locked out of the garden. So besides inheriting Adam's guilt, we also inherited his sinful nature. So Ephesians 2, 3 says, We are all by children nature, all by nature, children of wrath. Through Adam, sin is in our very nature. So don't get me wrong, we're not utterly depraved. It is by God's common grace that even non-Christians have a moral sense. Um, the common phrase is, even Hitler uh, loved his mother, right? God has given all of his image bearers a conscience. Therefore, we are not as evil as we could be. However, we are all totally depraved in that every part of our being is affected by sin. It affected our motives, our words, our deeds, our thoughts. They were all marred by sin. So 
we often say our hearts are deceitfully wicked, but so is our mind and our will and our emotions, our conscience, our physical bodies. There's no aspect of our being that has not been negatively impacted by sin. Every part of us has in some way been corrupted. That's what that verse in 19, verse 19 says. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So because of this nature, we each individually bear the responsibility for our own sin. James 1, 13 to 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God does not tempt us to sin. That temptation lies within each one of us. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Proverbs 27, 19. No, I just read that one. What is... What does Jesus say about our hearts? In Mark 7, 21 to 23, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So sin is not a passive mistake. It's not a simple weakness or an imperfection. It's an active opposition and rebellion to God and his laws. It's in our nature to sin. We desire to sin. We do not desire godliness. Our sin is not something passive, and it's not simply an action. We cannot say of ourselves or others that our heart is good, but our actions are bad. Jesus looks at our hearts and judges the intentions of it. In Matthew 5, 27 to 28, he says, "'You have heard that, I was, that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery.'" But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin is not just an action, but an attitude. In Scripture, sin is always spoken of as a free but evil choice of man. This is true of Adam in Genesis 3, and it's true of us. Paul speaks of it in Romans 1 when speaking of the unrighteous. And in Isaiah 48:8, he says that from birth we have chosen to rebel. Even David in Psalm 51.5 understood that from conception we have a heart towards sin. So the ramifications of Adam's sin has spread throughout us and throughout the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. But sisters, now we can move on to the good news, right? The Genesis 3 kicks off the, entire, the story, central storyline of the entire Bible. And as we've been learning in Exodus this year, we must ask... How does a holy God dwell with an unholy people? How does he bring a people alienated from him back into communion with him? So the answer to that is in that same passage in Romans 5, okay? So, as sin reigned in death, grace will also reign through righteousness, And that leads to eternal life. So we can walk through all of these things, right? Sin, Adam brought sin, Christ brought grace. Sin came into the world through one man, yet death reigned from Adam and Moses. We're going to walk through Romans 5, 12 to 21 again and look at the things that Christ has done. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man abounded for many. 
Death is not spread in you. You have a new nature. The free gift is not like the result of one man's, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So if our debt is right here, and this is a bank account, and this is our debt, right? The debt of sin. Romans 5 says that in Christ's sacrifice, our debt is wiped free. But not just our debt. What do we gain? We gain his righteousness. And this right here, his, his goodness and his righteousness, this is justification. The fall alienated us from God, and the beauty of the Garden of Eden was communion with God, knowing God, dwelling with him, walking with him. And sin bro broke that communion, but Christ has brought it back. Christ died for our sins, taking on our debt and our punishment, paying, paying that payment once and for all. This payment is forever wiped out. And it's a free gift to all who repent and believe. In John Piper's book, God is the Gospel, the central idea is that the glory of the Gospel isn't just forgiveness of sins. I mean, praise God that we get that. But the, the glory of the Gospel is that we get God. Through the Gospel, we have access to God again. We can know him and be known by him. Hallelujah, right? When we accept him, we are no longer ruled by sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our debt of sin has been wiped away, and it's been erased forever. But the beauty of the gospel isn't just that our debt has been paid in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is the holiness that has been attributed to us. Bev Barris did an amazing job teaching about how we live, um, how we have been made holy, and how we are being made holy. And that audio is up on our website now, and I would encourage you to listen to it. Yet we still live in a world tainted by sin. We still have the presence of sin, not just in the world around us, but in our own lives. 2 Peter 1.4 says that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Those promises included eternal life with him, the consummation of our salvation, this, sisters, is the end game, where Isaiah says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The world and everything in it will be reconciled to him. Revelation 21, 3-4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is a day coming when sin will be no more, where death and pain and suffering will end, and where God will dwell with his people once again. What a glorious day that will be. So Sproul says that if you get the nature of sin wrong, you will get the gospel wrong. Because what is the beauty of redemption and reconciliation with God if we don't understand that there was an alienation from God? So maybe the next time you purse, your purse falls over and dumps everything out, or your child screams in anger at you, 
or your friend gets a cancer diagnosis, you can see that while sin reigns on earth now, there will be a day when it doesn't. And in the meantime, because of the precious Savior that we have, it doesn't reign in you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that, we, that death does not reign in us no more, that sin does not reign, reign in us either. Thank you for the glorious day that we can, the hope that we can look forward to of dwelling with you. I thank you that we can know you now and be known by you. Thank you for the free gift that Christ has given us in his redemption. In your name I pray, amen.